Hi, this is Ira from Ira on Sports. We're talking to the Wall Street Journal NBA reporter, but author of the book called The Hot Hand, Ben Cohn. Ben, thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming on Ira on Sports. Thank you for having me. So, Ben, um, about three weeks ago, when people were playing golf, this is the fourth Honda Classic. My cousin uh, Bruce, who's probably like a ninety shooter in golf was texting me playing the Honda Classic, the Champions Course. And the first nine holes, I mean, every, like, I guess 30 minutes, 20 minutes, I'm getting an update that he parred it, birdied it, hit another great shot, and he ended up having a 38 through the front nine. Would you say that he had the hot hand then, or was that, was, was that wrong? <laughs> I would say that maybe your cousin was lying about his score, first of all. <laughs> but, uh, no, I think that's a classic example of the hot hand. The hot hand is this psychological phenomenon that has always been studied through basketball. But the reason why it's been studied through basketball is that it applies far beyond basketball. I mean, it applies to everyday life and how we make decisions and human behavior, but it also applies to golf. And I think that many of us who have ever golfed um, have been fortunate enough to have those days when the pin looks huge, right? And, And the hole when you're putting looks like a helipad and like you know that you are playing well and you are going to play well. And I think that's, you know, that one of the questions at the heart of this book that I wrote is like, is that phenomenon real? Should we trust what we see and feel or should we behave differently? And then you center it on Steph Curry, and that's a good person to center it because there could be no one hotter sometimes uh, when he's hot, when he's usually always hot. But And you talked about that game in the Knicks when he was at, before he played at Madison Square Garden, I think in his third year, he was averaging 18 points a game, taking five threes a game. But in one game at Madison Square Garden, he scored 54. And then after that, he's now a 27-point game shooter, MVP of the league. And that just turned it all on in terms of, of what the hot hand. So you were, you were very interested in Steph Curry and the whole idea of using him as a basis for is there a hot hand or not? Yeah, when I wanted to explore this idea of the hot hand in basketball, I figured like who better to personify it than the greatest shooter in the history of the planet? And it turns out that Steph Curry, when you ask him what is the hottest you have ever been, he points to this one game against the New York Knicks in Madison Square Garden in 2013. Um, as you said, he scored 54 points, he made 11 of his 13 three-pointers, This was kind of the game that was an epiphany for everybody involved. It was the game that changed his life. It was the game that changed the fate of the Golden State Warriors and really the future of the NBA. Now, you gave some of those stats. I think we all know he's won two MVPs since then. The Golden State Warriors have won three of the last five championships. Uh, But what I really wanted to know when I was talking to Steph about this magical game was, does he know when he is going to get hot? I think we, we, we're all familiar with this feeling, this universal phenomenon of the hot hand. And I think one of the curious things about it is that we never really seem to know how we are going to get hot, right? If we, if we did, if we could know that, we would try to optimize for those situations. So when Steph Curry and I were talking about this game against the Garden when he just couldn't miss, I said to him, like, do you, do you know when you are going to get hot? And what he says is that he doesn't know when it's going to happen or why or how or where it's going to happen. But once it does happen, you have to embrace it. And this game happens to be just the perfect example of that. The, the Warriors had gotten into a fight the night before. Steph Curry missed the bus that he usually takes uh, going to road games. He ended up taking another bus, and that bus got pulled over on the way to Madison Square Garden. He woke up that morning with a, a $35,000 fine, and yet, like, still, this was the game when everything broke his way. So it's a, it's a really nice reminder that once it does happen, once you do get hot, 
You have to embrace it. And then there was a game when I was in law school. I must have spent, I guess, every quarter I put at, could find on the NBA Jam. And we actually, one of my good friends is Mike Isolino, who played for the Mavericks. And he was part of the game. So he's famous. He's now a coach at Robert Morris. But because he was an NBA Jam, he became famous. But you interviewed the author, Mark Tunnel. I'm not the author, the creator of the game, Mark Tunnel. And in part of the game is the hot hand, where if you make one shot, you get another shot. And in just the whole story of Mark and the game and the whole whole concept of the hot hand was was symbolized in that game NBA Jam. Yeah, so Mark Turmel is like one of the great video game designers of his generation. And when he was a kid, he loved three things. He loved basketball and he loved games and he loved fire. He was actually a bit of a pyromaniac. <laughs> and when he grew up, he would grow up uh, to, to combine these three childhood loves into the biggest hit of his career. And that game was called NBA Jam. And so, you know, when I grew up, I played NBA Jam. I'm, I'm a, uh, basically the same age as Steph Curry, and he played NBA Jam. Everybody played NBA Jam. What I did not realize until writing this book was that NBA Jam was one of the most lucrative, successful arcade games ever. It made a billion dollars in quarters in its first year of existence. Not a million, a billion <laughs> with a B. And, and the question is why, right? Like, why were we so obsessed with this game? Because NBA Jam, if you remember, was a really weird game. It, it, was, it was modeled after, like, a, a sci-fi game set in a post-apocalyptic society. You could, like, jump over the basket to throw down dunks. You could push people. You could you know, put up threes from half court. It was, it was super bizarre. Um, what I think is that, you know, the, the great superpower of this game was what happened when you made a few shots in a row, you were heating up and then you were on fire. And I think that uh, what Mark Turmel did was he single-handedly brainwashed a generation of impressionable young minds <laughs> into believing the concept of the hot hand that like once three shots went in, you were going to make a fourth. And like, that resonates to this day. Like, I think that if you were to ask anyone who played NBA Jam, do you believe in the hot hand? They would say yes, and probably they would say yes because they played NBA Jam. But then you translated your book. I mean, I was expecting Curry, more basketball, but then there's this great, we're talking to Ben Cohn, author of The Hot Hand, just a tremendous, exciting book, and it is a perfect book. I mean, it's very, it makes you think. I mean, I, I put down the book after almost every like 10 pages and just thought about what you're writing because I mean, in your own <laughs> mind, you're thinking, wait, do I think there's a hot hand or do I not think there's a hot hand? But you then you go to like people like Rob Reiner, directors, Rebecca Clark, who's a, a composer. And then you talk even to shit about Shakespeare and saying, well, other artists in their life have get these hot hands, but you have to be able to take advantage of the hot hand. Whereas if, if Steph Curry was hot, but he wasn't allowed to take threes, then he doesn't really have the hot hand. You have to be able to situation. And if you could just tell a little about the Shakespeare story, because you talk about where he, he was writing during the time of plagues and the pandemic, which we're having right now. And I just yeah. think it was so timely. And I mean, of course, you wrote this book way before uh, you, know, you knew about the coronavirus. But the point is, the story about Shakespeare was just fascinating. Yeah, it's one of the few times where I wish I were not timely, right? I was not expecting to, to write this book into the heart of a pandemic. But, um, you know, when Shakespeare scholars have looked back at his career and they've tried to understand how he wrote, for a very long time, they thought that he just, you know, was a, a regular, you know, metronomic writer. Uh, it turns out that was not remotely true. He ran hot and cold. He wrote in streaks. And one of the great hot streaks of his career was when he wrote King Lear, Macbeth, and Anthony and Cleopatra in a very, very short amount of time. Some people believe as little as two months. And the question is, what changed? Was it Shakespeare or was it the world around Shakespeare? And the answer is a little bit of both. But it turns out 
he wrote these plays in a plague year. The plague was actually kind of his secret weapon. And, you know, the, the plague was this constant force in Shakespeare's life. It was one of his biographers says it was the single most powerful force that shaped his life. He probably should have died from it when he was an infant. He baked it into Romeo and Juliet, which, you know, most people don't realize the plague is what turns like the most famous love story ever into this tragedy. And then he takes advantage of it again in 1605 and 1606 when he rips off this just glorious run of writing. And it's, it's a really nice reminder that if the hot hand is this collision of talent and circumstance and luck, sometimes circumstance presents itself when you least expect it. And sometimes circumstance is the plague. And I think that's worth keeping in mind now. Like, we're not all going to write King Lear while we're stuck in quarantine and lockdown, but there is some great art uh, that's going to come out of this very strange period. And um, it's because of unexpected events. And, you know, all we can try to do is adapt and try to take advantage of them. And then you always, you, you, you bring it interesting. You compared asylum judges and baseball umpires, which you're like, wow, in the world do you get this connection? But the point was that a baseball umpire, like you said, Bill Miller, who has the widest strike zone, if he calls a strike on two, two times, so he calls two strikes, the third one, even though it's probably a strike, is more likely going to call a ball because he doesn't expect it to be three strikes. And you said the same thing with an asylum judge, that an asylum judge, if he grants asylum to two people, the third one, even if he has the better case than the first two, the, the asylum judge in his mind says, I've just granted two, I got to grant, I got to say no to a third one. So explain that connection between the asylum judges and the baseball umpires. Yeah, it's amazing. Economists have actually studied this, and there's this one incredible paper that came out a few years ago that looked at asylum judges and baseball umpires, and they wanted to understand how they make decisions under a condition known as the gambler's fallacy. And so the easiest way to understand the gambler's fallacy is actually through basketball. So you walk into an NBA arena and you see Steph Curry make three shots in a row. Everybody thinks he's making a fourth shot. That's the hot hand. But if you walk into a casino and you go to the roulette wheel and you see red three times in a row, what research has actually shown is that most people bet on black the next time. And that's the gambler's fallacy. And the difference there is the one of control and whether or not we bet on a streak to continue or to end. And what these economists who studied baseball umpires and asylum judges found is that both of them make decisions uh, and they behave according to the gambler's fallacy. So they try to end the streak. They bet against the streak. It's actually the opposite of the hot hand. And there are huge stakes. So if you're a baseball player, like, you know, getting punched out in a third strike is sort of a trivial example, right? But if you are a refugee and you're applying for asylum, this idea that, like, you could be granted or denied asylum based on what this judge has done for the past two or three cases, regardless of the merits of your case, I mean, that's not trivial. That's really crushing. And to me, like, the, the power of, of that example in particular is to show that there are real human consequences for how we make decisions and how the hot hand works. This is not just some eggheads and some geeks thinking about this basketball phenomenon in their cyclops. I mean, this is, this is the real world. And um, I, I, I just think there's a force to the hot hand and to this corollary of the hot hand, the gambler's fallacy, that's really worth thinking about in our daily lives. 
Well, you talk about in daily life and anyone who plays in iTunes or Spotify, and you said that they had a problem is that sometimes if in their Spotify, if it comes up, say, Billy Joel, three songs in a row, they're saying, oh, my gosh, there's a problem with my Spotify because it had three. But they don't understand that sometimes randomness is in a row. And it's it's hard for people to, to wrap their mind around the fact that and you actually you're talking about what they had Spotify and, and iTunes had to do to get that randomness actually out of the place. Yeah, Spotify and Apple, these two, like, you know, monolithic companies that, you know, just have billions of dollars to spend. It turned out they both had the same problem, which is that um, people, when they when they shuffled their playlists and they, they randomly generated music, they were convinced that their music was not actually random. And that's because randomness is really hard for us to wrap our minds around. And sometimes randomness means hearing the same artist twice in a row or even the same song twice in a row. And yet that's not what we want randomness to be. And so what both Spotify and Apple did was they tweaked their algorithms. They changed the code and they dispersed songs by the same artist over the course of a playlist to make sure that you would never have the burden of hearing two Billy Joel songs in a row because <laughs> we, never, we never want that. So essentially what they had to do is this really ironic um, uh, twist, which is they had to make their algorithms less random to feel more random. And to me, that was such a delicious example of how um, the hot hand and how we see patterns and randomness where they don't exist. And sometimes we even invent causes to explain them. It shows why we believe in the hot hand, why we were so convinced of this phenomenon, even when some of the brightest people on the planet told us there was no such thing as the hot hand. So then getting back to basketball, I mean, I can't believe that people like these experts at Stanford, like these top psych, um, this was like important for them, like the social um, psychologist, uh, Tversky, whatever. And they went and they studied, they go to Philadelphia 76ers and they went and studied their games because the Harvey Pollock, I went to Penn when Pollock was there. So I know that he kept yeah. a zillion stats and everything yeah. like that. So they went and they analyzed all of Harvey's stats and then they looked at the players and they did this whole conclusion. And what did they, what did, what did they conclude? They essentially found that you were no more likely to make your next shot after you've made a few shots in a row, right? And that was sort of evidence against the hot hand for 35 years. It turns out um, in, in this very convoluted um, way because of this very subtle mathematical quirk, it was actually evidence for the hot hand. But for, for three decades, it seemed that the, the best available evidence, the best data that was available to, to us at the time suggested that the hot hand was basically a figment of our imagination. When you made two or three shots in a row, you were no more likely to make your next shot. And that was the great breakthrough of this paper. It, it sort of defied something that we all thought to be true because we had all felt the hot hand and seen the hot hand for ourselves. It was this lovely cognitive bias, this, this really easily digestible, um, accessible uh, example of seeing patterns and randomness in our minds playing tricks on us. And then I don't know if I want to give away the end of the book or if you don't want to, if you want to say read the book, but I did want to go and talk about the Caltech researchers who go in and they were able to use now, 30 years later, we have stats and you can see like where everybody is on the court at every time, what kind of shots they hit. And with all these tech, this technology has advanced to this super duper level. But they went and looked at a Spanish basketball team and, and could really give them just keep shooting the balls and just sort of like re-examine whether there's a hot hand or not. Exactly. There, the, the data that we have now is so much better than what it was in 1985. It's even better than what it was in 2012. And that new data and new ways of thinking about that data has led us to, to change our minds about the hot hand. And it suggests that our intuition actually may have been right on this one. And maybe there is such a thing as the hot hand. So 
at the end of the book, you, you will have sort of been presented with both sides of this case. And you can kind of be like a jury. You can, you can take the evidence and you can see what sticks and you can sort of toy around with this idea for yourself and see where you land. And I think that's the really fun thing about thinking about the hot hand. There are really smart people on both sides of this debate. And sometimes you just have to think about it for yourself and, and try to apply it to your own life and, and figure out what you think. I mean, that's sort of the beauty of this world of ideas. And then I loved how in the book, though, you used Craig Hodges because they finally went and looked at all yeah. the three-point shooting contests. And Craig Hodges once won a fantasy basketball league for me, so I'm really a partial to him. Oh, so you're but partial, sure. it was it was like, but by looking at Craig Hodges, like at first they said you can't have the hot hand, and then did. But it was like that. Just watching Craig Hodges, who one of the best three-point shooters of all time, shoot, and in, in the three-point shooting contest, that gave them the ideas that well, maybe. When he's hot, that's part of his game. Like he does have the hot hand because because we're uh, the reversion to the norm, or however you want to explain that. Yeah, Craig Hodges plays a crucial role in the history of the hot hand, which <laughs> is that these two young American economists in Europe, Josh Miller and Adam Sanherjo, when they were looking at the hot hand, they were looking at three point contests in search of evidence for the hot hand. They watched Craig Hodges, and they basically said, like, "There's no way that Craig Hodges is not hot here." And yet, when they looked at the data, that's exactly what it said. So it made them rethink uh, the math behind the hot hand, and, and it led to this new conclusion. But I have to say, my favorite thing about the hot hand, and, and Craig Hodges, which I did not realize until writing this book, was that he won the three-point contest in 1991, 1992, and 1993. And then in 1994, you might remember, he was not in the NBA anymore. And yet he was invited <laughs> to the three-point contest that year at All-Star Weekend because the thought of having a three-point contest without him was so unimaginable. I mean, can you imagine that happening today? It's like it's like bringing uh, like, you know, uh, it's like Dwayne Wade back to the dunk contest now or something. It would, it would be crazy, and yet it was, like, totally fine when it happened. We're talking to Ben Cohn, author of The Hot Hand. Um, it's a book. I think it's coming out this week, so you can order on Amazon, uh, Kindle, everything. It's phenomenal. I mean, everybody's at home for another month, and you're looking for an interesting book to read. This is a great book to read. It's going to make you think. And if you don't even like basketball, this book is interesting. You have stories we haven't covered about Raul Wallenberg and everyone else. And Of course, we talked about the Shakespeare story, but there's so many different stories in here. And I want to ask you about baseball, though, because the stats on baseball are amazing in terms of they can actually look at how people are throwing and how they're doing. And, and I just was wondering, could someone have a hot hand because they're in the groove and they actually feel like they actually feel like they're throwing correctly, their mechanics are perfect, and that's what then gets them in the hot hand? And then when they, like, sit down, like, maybe, like, one inning, they're perfect because they're mechanics. They know exactly how to throw the ball and release the ball. And now with these stats, they're able, with the pictures and the angles, they're able to show what you're at a millimeter off and throwing in the second inning than you were in the first. So suddenly you don't have the hot hand, but you're just your mechanics are a little off. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing to me about baseball is that there's essentially um, a defense, right? Like, if you are a pitcher and you think you're hot, well, like, what happens if you go against a batter who's really hot? So, like, you can, you can let one pitch slip and it's the wrong, you know, it, it, it's a fastball down the middle when you want it to be on the outside corner, and suddenly you're no longer hot. I mean, I think it's mostly been applied to hitters who feel like they're in the zone. I mean, I used to play baseball, and I could feel that for myself. There were some days when the ball looked like a beach ball. And also the, there were some days when it looked like a golf ball and those days were terrible. But um, that's sort of the interesting thing about baseball and basketball is that there are people who are designed to stop your momentum In basketball. They can call a timeout or they double team you or they change the defense, right? In life, you know, life doesn't work like sports. Like if you're a movie director, if you're a writer, if you are a songwriter um, and you feel like you are hot, there's no one who is trying to stop your hotness, right? They're actually trying to make you even hotter. If you're a movie director, 
they send screenplays your way and, and actors want to work with you and producers want to throw money at you. And um, I think that's when we get back to that idea of circumstances and how we could take advantage of circumstances to get hot. I mean, baseball, there's a team that is trying to stop you. They're trying to beat you. There are not teams that are trying to beat you in real life always, right? I mean, sometimes there are, but 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 in many times there are not. And um, I think, you know, it's it's probably a good thing that not all of us grew up to be professional baseball and basketball players because we can take advantage when we feel hot. Amazing. Just, I mean, the book made me think. It's called The Hot Hand from Ben Cohn, The Mystery of Science and Streaks. I, I know you're really busy, Ben. Uh, and uh, so thank you. I appreciate you for coming on Iron Sports.